0: I just think keeping creative and of course using data as much as you can embracing the contradictions you know keep it simple but but also think laterally and be creative you know learn to distinguish you know what's a fact and what's speculation you know when when, when people are speaking i think that that's incredible there's a lot of lazy supposition out there and, and most importantly remember nobody knows anything for sure so, so do be skeptical but again Don't let that stop you making decisions and having a strategy. And then once you have a strategy, which is totally different from a trade, you know, sticking to the plan. That's always my line. Uh, Stick to the plan. Imagine spending an
1: hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged.
2: For me, the best part of my podcasting journey has been the opportunity to speak to a huge range of extraordinary investors from all around the world. In this series, I have invited one of them, namely Alan Dunn, to host a series of in-depth conversations on the topic of what it takes to be a world-class allocator. In today's world, portfolio construction is fast moving to the top of the agenda of many investors as they try to analyze and understand the riskiness of their portfolios. And with ever increasing uncertainty around the globe, being well diversified across many different strategies and themes in your portfolio can mean the difference between ruin and survival when the next crisis emerge. The aim of these conversations is to try and understand the experiences that have influenced these highly specialized allocators and the processes they follow to harness the best returns for their clients so that we can all become better informed investors.
3: And with that, Please welcome, Alan Dunn. Thanks very much, uh, Niels. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Joe Pendergast. Joe is Global Strategic Advisor and Head of Investment Strategy at Goodbody in Dublin. Joe has been in the markets many years, and immediately prior to being at Goodbody, Joe was Head of Financial Market Strategy at Credit Suisse in Zurich. Joe, great to have you on. How are you today? Good morning, Alan. I'm pretty good. Thank you very much. How about yourself? I'm Grace, yeah, Grace. Good we're, in, we're in the rundown. It's nice and early this morning. <laughs> we're doing an early one and it's in the run-up to Christmas, but it'll be early January by the time this is out, I'm sure. A good good time to be uh, setting the uh, setting the thought process for for the year ahead. Indeed. Um, but we, we normally like to start, Joe, just getting uh, our guests to give a quick uh, recap on their experience, how they got involved in financial markets and their route to current roles. So if you wouldn't mind, if you... Give us a quick overview of how you got started in the markets uh, and ended up in company.
0: Sure, and and Alan, if someone had asked me, you know, was I destined for financial markets when I was setting out in my career, I would certainly have said no. I, I had a big interest in everything creative, um, all kinds of photography and art and stuff like that, and having been soundly rejected from art college probably quite, quite wisely, uh, I, I guess I did a little bit of a rebellion and did the most serious thing I could think of, which at the time... Uh, was e- economics but it, it turns out to be something I particularly liked and uh, the economic history part of it particularly history of economic thought was something that definitely uh, resonated with me and 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 really specifically creative writing around that I'd done a lot of reading of Charles Kindleberger and J.K. Galbraith you know trying to be pretentious at the time uh, carrying around these books but they were absolutely fascinating and I absolutely um Embraced to the idea that you could marry kind of finance and creativity together, and originally I thought that would lead me to journalism, but but actually I became an analyst. Uh, so that's sort of my
3: introduction
0: to financial markets.
3: Good stuff. And I know you spent many years at Credit Suisse across investment banking, asset management, and uh, and wealth management as well over 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 a couple of decades. I think. Um, how how did that come about? And I guess, what were the learnings from from working both the sell side and, 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 the, and the buy side? Yeah, so
0: I, I, you're absolutely right. I spent almost all of my career at Credit Suisse, um, more than 20 years. And I did the full triathlon from starting in investment banking through wealth management and actually ending up uh, in asset management, albeit just for a short time uh, before I left. I absolutely loved it. I have to say, Um, you know, as a company, it was extremely entrepreneurial, especially when I joined it, uh, when it was uh, Credit Suisse first Boston uh, back in the day. And, you know, really a big trading driven house, mainly hedge fund clients. And it's something I absolutely loved at the time. Um, Moving to wealth management um, was a totally different experience, but I had a, a very strong boss and mentor, Giles Keating. Who you may know, who had started on the investment banking side, but moved to the wealth management side to run uh, the research and strategy part of that. And I joined him in Zurich uh, in 2008, and of course the financial crisis was just unfolding. There was a lot of work to do, and we really embraced uh, the wealth management side of it. And I suppose inevitably, with with Credit Suisse, people are going to ask about the demise, you know, the firm more recently, which for me personally, of course, is very sad. and uh, not something I would have ever expected, uh, um, but it you know to me I suppose when I look back at the 21 years there, the first 17 or 18 were fantastic. There definitely was a bit of a change of mood, and maybe also in terms of management and governance in the the last few years. Obviously, there was a couple of scandals and things which are well known, mostly after my time. But um, yeah, it, it was definitely quite a traumatic experience to see such a
3: fantastic firm. Uh, descend into uh, a very ignoble end. Yes, and I mean, obviously, uh, you've transitioned back back to uh, Dublin here. You're working with Goodbody. Maybe before we get into the meat of the conversation, could you give us a sense on the types of portfolios you're running at Goodbody, types of clients, constraints, etc.?
0: Yeah, and you know, Good Goodbody is uh, you know an old company, 150 years old uh, next year, one of the original nineteenth century uh, brokerage houses the only remaining one actually steeped in tradition and heritage. and and our our, our clients are very much the business world of Ireland. Um, and a, an awful lot of our business today, particularly in terms of the larger clients, is exits from business, on the wealth management side. So you know very, very often a a, a client will be active across both the investment banking. M and A kind of advisory part of the business initially, but you know then ultimately, uh, if there's an exit or something, you know could could end up being a wealth management client. So it's very integrated in that sense. Um, but we cover pretty much all types of client. For, uh, we're really focused on the wealth side, on the one million plus um, client profile. And my own big focus is what we call strategic clients, which is more the bigger end of it. It could be you know, the individuals in the 30, 40 million bracket are more quasi-institutional types with maybe 100 or 200 million. That's sort of um, where we are focused. Uh, And the objective, you know, it's all about peace of mind at the end of the day. I I, I always observed, and this goes back years, uh, on the wealth management side in Zurich, meeting so many people who would do exits from companies and they had this really deep sense of understanding of how the company worked. Every cash flow, every little movement, you know, they could almost feel it in their veins. And when the company is sold and it turns into a pile of cash, it, it's incredibly, uh, if, if, if it's a word, disempowering kind of event. And people definitely struggle uh, because, you know, there's all these complicated things to do with. Uh, the feeling that the money is blowing away in the wind through taxes and fees, and then having to make decisions in financial markets, which are very different, you know, liquid financial markets from owning a direct business. So very early on, on the wealth side, I really tried to focus on this idea of peace of mind, putting a structure and a purpose around wealth, coming up with a framework for management and very clear metrics of success. You know, it's all very well to talk people about benchmarks and so on but these are abstract concepts to somebody who's just sold a business so uh, really trying to focus on that aspect has been my speciality.
3: Okay very interesting um, so maybe translating that into then kind of a more something more uh, tangible from an investment perspective I mean useful to get a sense on obviously you're talking about peace of minds which, which kind of suggests a kind of a I mean, to me at least, a like kind of a robust long, long-term kind of thinking, I, w- I would guess. But, but but yeah, from an investment philosophy perspective, how would you describe your approach to, to managing money and, and setting out asset allocation? So the, the, the approach is absolutely rooted in strategic asset
0: allocation, which as you'll know from all the discussions I'm sure you've had, it's obviously very, very common in wealth management that strategic asset allocation is at the heart of of most approaches to this however uh, my approach always was to think of strategic asset allocation really as 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 a risk control mechanism you know this is you know if if you look at the the core portfolio that we might build for a larger client it it, it will look not that different from the portfolio that you know anybody might have as a strategic asset all- allocation and it might be you know more oriented to you know 50% equities 50% lower risk assets at the core and and the reason for that is this idea that if you take a 5 year time horizon and look at you know just the euro based benchmark as almost all of our clients are euro based the reality is that over a 5 year time horizon going back 20 30 years that that 50 50 portfolio has an extremely good track record of preserving nominal capital. We'll talk about real maybe later on, but the chances are, uh, if you you extrapolate forward, if you use this as your core portfolio, you should have a very low probability of loss in nominal terms. And to me, this is really important for the peace of mind uh, function for the investor, because you also want to have other bits you know you do want to have a liquidity related piece where you know there's really almost no market risk at all and that's very driven by what you know what li- liquidity does somebody need uh, for the next year two years five years whatever they're comfortable with and of course then an illiquid piece where you're saying well this is maybe a bit longer term this is where the the real risk is being taken the aspirational kind of part of the portfolio which might be you know, cl- classically in private equity or some other, you know, higher risk premia. But at the core of it is really this idea that there is a a high probability strategy that you're not, you know, you're not just putting everything on the table. Uh, you're you actually have a strong sense that this is preserving and is a sensible thing to do, and you're not up at night worried about whether the S&P is up or down 5%, you know, that's really at the heart of it. And and around that, you know, we we you know we, we can build out as much as we like in terms of core satellite type things and all, all of this. Um, but that simple strategic asset allocation is really at the heart of it. It's not for everybody. And there's some clients who definitely want 100% equity or whatever it is, but we would almost always um, counsel against that and, and at least get them to listen to the idea, well, you know, it's all, you know. it's you You can have 100% equity as your portfolio, but if you look at the number of times that portfolio may have had a drawdown in the region of 50% over the last 20, 25 years and have not recovered fully over five years, whatever about 10, 10 would be more likely. It just seems not a very sensible thing to do. And, and if you had the option instead of having a high probability strategy, but still have the more illiquid equity where you might be able to identify you, you know a, a larger risk premium um
3: you know maybe that's a more compartmentalized and safer way to do it okay fair enough and i mean obviously you're focused on this kind of 50 50 broad split and i guess it, a lot of people uh, talk about 60 40 so i mean you can debate what are the numbers but it's just the philosophy is similar i mean if you go back to the last year we had a lot of obviously last year was an a well an unusual year in the sense of a, of declines concurrent declines in both bonds and equity so a lot of assets struggled at the same time and obviously there was a change in the macro environment i guess in 21 22 with higher inflation and, and a big jump up in interest rates one did you think that was an unusual year would you be you know do you think we we could see more of those types of years going forward and does that change your thinking around the kind of strategic asset allocation at all so on the last part, first, in terms of, you know, does
0: 2022 in particular change the perception on strategic asset allocation? My, my answer is no, but I, I'm leading that back to one of the opening statements, uh, which is that I really see the strategic asset allocation being about risk control. And and even though you had a very big drawdown uh, in, in the bond market and benchmark bonds, the other aspect of this would be to say, well, what do we mean by bonds? And, and, you know, I would say, if you look at the benchmark that typically people will use, like uh, a, the euro aggregate or a similar index, it, it's obviously quite a long duration instrument. And so the way I would think about it is, as a private investor who's not forced to be at the benchmark, but, you know, who looks at the capital-weighted bond market nonetheless as an investable Entity and, and and therefore the bond the bond benchmark is relevant. Uh, you can be anywhere between you know cash and fully extended in duration and 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 unless you had an exceptional circumstance with curve shapes and yields, you're probably not going to really be looking at duration as your or, or the term premium as a big attractive risk premium in your basket. So so in in, in terms of 2022. Uh, the big sell-off in bonds was far greater, I think, than most people expected. Certainly, far bigger than I expected. Relatively short duration, of course, um, which I would consider to be almost almost part of the strategic approach, was a big help with that. Um, and yes, but if you you know, particularly if you had a very conservative portfolio, it, it was really shocking. And could we have another one? Um, I. Don't think it's impossible, but obviously the starting level of yields today is completely different. Uh, what troubles me a little bit is the curve shape. Obviously, is inverted uh, still, and inflation is coming down, as you know, which is great. But if it were to go back up at some point, uh, which is not impossible, of course, uh, then you know the long end of the bond market could still react to that on, on a twelve-month time horizon. I think things are going the other way and bonds are probably going to do quite well because there seems to be a pretty clear monetary pivot. And, you know, we do tend to see bond markets trend very, very strongly around those kind of times. I, I know a topic uh, close to your heart, Alan, you know, there's, you know, great persistence in returns around those type of times, but at the same time, yields are not exactly at record highs. So, um, the chances are that there's a limit to how far that will go. But we're certainly been comfortable extending duration modestly. Still, we're way below what people would consider the bond market benchmark. And the way we justify that, by the way, um, because you could say, well, if you're not getting the term premium, surely you're going to underperform. That, of course, depends on the curve shape and the role and all that stuff. But what we would prefer to do is, is probably have a somewhat more Overweight corporate exposure with relatively short duration, as a compensation for the fact that we typically might not be getting the term premium, particularly with curve shapes uh, the way they are now, which we would you know see as less attractive than it could be. So we are extending duration, but we still maintain a lot of relatively short dated uh, corporate exposure as well, and that's where we see. Uh, you know, if I take a step back to this high probability idea that the 50-50, I'll call it the 60-40, I mean, 50-50, I would prefer because the 60-40 would have somewhat more incidence of loss uh, over that five-year time horizon. But, uh, you know, to me, uh, that comes about because you have the drag, the positive drag of yield in bonds, dividends, in equities. And given a bit of time, if the balance is right and the starting yield is okay, your probability of a positive outcome is pretty good. And so we would still hold with that today.
3: Okay. And obviously, um, you know, you, you touched on the kind of uh, those recurring five-year periods and this approach being reasonably robust over, over history with, with, with that kind of uh, time frame. You know, if you go back, I guess, the last the kind of the 10 years 2010, to 2019 was particularly favorable for, 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 for the approach. You know, obviously starting valuations were good with we a very benign kind of low inflation environment, rates zero. You know, and, and I guess maybe just thinking about the question a different way. I mean, it sounds like even if we were into a changed kind of macro environment of more volatile inflation or more uncertain, you know, obviously we, we've been in a stronger nominal growth environment the last few years. And it could be the way things evolve going forward. And we're obviously in a higher rate environment. But all of that, you, you, your perspective would be, this is an approach that is robust through multiple cycles. Is that, is that fair to say?
0: Yeah, I, I certainly would believe that. And I think um, a lot of that just rests on on the stats that even through you know some of the really trying times we've had uh, in the last 20, 30 years, um, you know, the outcome... Has you know it, it has delivered what we would expect, uh, but of course we're looking back, Alan. So of course you know it's just not a huge uh, statement to say <laughs> to say it has delivered. But um, I think that the today's environment is really interesting for many of the reasons you mentioned, um, and I think it's all about being realistic in terms of the return and and the and the probability, and this goes back to the peace of mind function. Nominal growth has been relatively high because of inflation, um, and we're settling down to probably more normal levels of nominal growth now in the next few years. But throughout COVID, uh, that whole experience with, with, with COVID, we've seen enormous volatility in GDP, enormous volatility in earnings, probably a really significant overshoot in earnings to the upside. And something that I really look at and, and I would strongly recommend people look at is if you go back and you have to use the S&P for this because the data is just not as as good elsewhere. But back over the last 70 years, you look at nominal earnings per share in the S&P 500 in almost any v- variant you want and just look at that number, preferably in log terms so it's normalized, you know, so you get a kind of... Um, A sense of the rate of growth, draw a straight trend line through it, and is one of the best best um, behaving time series you will ever find. It has a very very strong clear trend. It deviates up and down, but not by a whole lot, and and it's almost like a little description of how the world works. You know, when earnings get too high relative to trend, things are happening to bring them in the other direction, and similarly. On the downside, and it's policy reaction, it's whatever it is, it's corporate action, whatever it is, and and to me, um, as we came in, you know, the last few years, we were obviously pretty strongly above trend earnings growth, and I would just assume we gravitate back towards trend earnings growth over time, and that's, you know, that's going to give us a pretty moderate expected return for equities, not negative but moderate or modest compared to uh, some of the stronger numbers we've seen uh, over the last uh, 10 years. So we're probably in for less of an, uh, an equity bull market than we had before, but we're still probably going to have equities going up over time because the earnings trend is still positive over time. And you're really just talking about this idea that policy has lent against the wind. Uh, you're going to see the normal lags occur and the equity market you know is just not going to have a stellar uh, outlook for the next couple of years. There's things that might change that but just taking that as your starting point. And when you look at the relationship then between the equity market and those earnings, okay, the price earnings ratio has gone up over time. You know, probably the long run average is about 16 in the S&P in the last uh, decade or so, it's it's closer to 18. And you can argue all day about whether that's reasonable, sustainable, whether that's a trend or is it going to reverse itself. But even allowing an 18, uh, you know, you can still get some modest um, uh, positive equity return. And, and then you also then have, of course, a very significantly positive bond deal compared to a year or so ago. And adding those things together as a conservative starting point, you know, you get a pretty decent starting point. But 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 you have to be clear that the expected return of that strategy is is contained. You know, you're talking something in the region of four to five percent nominal as as a likely return to your 50-50 core strategy. It's allowing about, you know, 7, 7 7.5% return on equity. It's assuming you have a decent amount of of corporate exposure within your high grade corporate as an investment grade corporate exposure within your, your bond. Allocation. So that's very much how we would look at it. That um, it, it's actually more about ad- adjusting what you expect to get out of that, and and that goes back to uh, something else I mentioned at the beginning, which is this this framework for the management of wealth and defining the metrics for success in the beginning. We would always like to have metrics for success that we can outperform, whereas benchmarks. You know, I always make this distinction very clearly between the asset management business and the wealth management business. The wealth management business cannot be run on a pure benchmark-oriented premise. It it, it just cannot be because you do have a very strong obligation to try and preserve capital, whereas the asset manager, the benchmark follower, does not. It's all about relative performance. So you know, our principal metric of success would be, you know, if we sat down, Alan and decided on a strategy for you for the next five years and, you know, we decided that a, you know, four to five percent return was reasonable and we all agree, we would be confident that we should be able to design a strategy that gives us a decent probability of reaching that outcome. And that's what it's all about. And then everything else around that, you know, as I say, we can build a lot of things around the periphery of that. Um, In terms of liquidity management, in terms of illiquid assets, we we can extend upon that. But having those metrics for success, and then the benchmarks still matter within the asset classes. So, you know, what funds or what equities did we pick within the equity slice and the same with fixed income? So rather than looking at the asset allocation versus its benchmark, you separate it out to say, look, this is what we were trying to achieve. Here's where our relative metrics matter. And then, of course, the third thing is we're very happy to be measured against others trying to do the same thing. So the likes of the asset risk consultant database or similar things of that nature, um, we're very uh, happy to be measured relative to peers also trying to both preserve capital and
3: grow over time. Good stuff. Well, a few things to pick up up, uh, on within Uh, that—it kind of prompts a number of questions. Um, So maybe, firstly, obviously, we've had a very changed environment in terms of cash rates. You know, so four to five percent, you know, sounded very reasonable. Maybe gone back four or five years, people would have, you know, people I speak to would say, "Oh yeah, if only I could get four or five percent, that would be great." Whereas, obviously, now in the last year, cash rates have jumped up. So curious to hear how that has. One impacted kind of client perception and investor perceptions around how their portfolio should be positioned and what the returns should be expected, or what type of return should be expected. And secondly, has it impacted your own uh, strategic asset allocation? I guess you touched on being kind of at the short term and short end in terms of fixed income. So, so possibly picking up on, on, on the ill there, I guess. Yeah. And, and look, I, I, it's a great question. And I, I think we really have to put that question
0: in the context. Of course, that n- positive nominal and even real cash rates are normal in the sense that we've been in a very abnormal period where negative cash rates in nominal terms and indeed real terms, uh, even more so, have you know been the norm for you know pretty much a the best part of a decade. We've had an extraordinary uh, phase where cash rates were distorting uh factor and you can argue we're kind of just back to to a more normal uh situation. Uh I would also maybe add that if you if you look at how cash rates have evolved, you know, in the fed tightening that started I, I think back in 2016 if I'm not mistaken towards the end of the year um but certainly in the late teens um and it was interrupted by a bit of a slowdown and then covid. Uh, and then we've had this rapid retightening. It's almost like the Fed are back on the course that they started when this tightening began, and they had an extraordinary deviation because they often have a deviation in the policy course, uh, and and actually this is all kind of just normal. And, and And of course, it has an impact on allocation because the higher the cash rate is, um, obviously, uh, particularly in our world where we're very focused on capital preservation and trying to uh grow wealth and ideally in real terms um but you know the opportunity of a very significantly positive cash rate is great particularly with curve shapes the way they are and equity valuations as i alluded to earlier maybe not being the most attractive and and that does have an impact going forward so there's no doubt our interpretation of that however is not then to put loads of money in cash that's certainly not something that we would do what we would do instead is really continue to focus on the short to mid-duration part of fixed income with relatively high um, uh, credit quality because you're getting the kind of double effect of both the higher level of cash rate and also a pretty decent corporate credit risk premium. And that seems to be the most efficient way uh, to take advantage of that situation. Um, So it it, it definitely has an impact and there's no doubt you know it also has an impact not only on the set on on sentiment in the equity market but you know fed tightening cycles ultimately uh, typically do break something and what it breaks can be in the credit markets it can be in the equity markets but it's it, it's typically not in the high grade corporate credit market so that all kind of feeds in into into that same same theme so yeah uh, th- what what I would say is when cash rates were extraordinarily low, I think there was a lot of inflow into the wealth management business, uh, seeking alternatives. And with 2022, obviously, a lot of those things uh, did not go well—at least not in the beginning. A lot of them now are coming back uh, into positive territory now, but particularly, you know, extending into short-dated corporate instruments, which would have had a positive yield. And again, as long as the duration was relatively short, the drawdowns were modest. But that's something that um, I, I, I think today would not be as attractive uh, to people to seek cash alternatives, generally speaking. I think there's a lot more cash just going to stay in cash now for a little while until something happens, and then maybe it'll be reallocated. So that may be a bit of a challenge for the industry uh, in the next year or so that it's just a little bit harder to shift money away from from cash like products but we certainly don't allocate a lot to cash uh we go elsewhere yeah
3: okay and maybe shifting into the other end of the risk spectrum obviously you've talked about that kind of core portfolio but maybe for people who want to shoot for a little bit of a higher return and or any and even just broadening out to the discussion obviously we've talked about kind of that core allocation between equity-like instruments and and kind of more uh, fixed income instruments, but we've got a whole range of alternative investments and different strategies, and uh, from private equity, property, infrastructure to to the whole gamut of, of hedge fund strategies. Where does that fit in? Is are they all in the category for more? aggressive uh high return oriented investors or how uh, how do you use those building blocks i guess across the different portfolios so um there's two things i would say to start that off the
0: the first thing is yes we we do use a variety of instruments to kind of uh, gather alternative risk premia or, or, or maybe just more prosaically larger risk premia because they're not necessarily alternative um They may be very similar uh, in nature. But maybe before that, just to mention one of my own observations on on risk, uh, because the minute we talk about diversification, uh, there is a tendency to think a little bit an institutional way, you know, and think about what are we diversifying, you know, and and, uh, I like to think of this idea that there is both a horizontal risk and a vertical risk. And the the horizontal risk is basically risk over time, what people would normally call volatility, right? And if you're a a private investor, volatility is relevant to you because the regulator makes it relevant. Your risk profile is linked to a volatility measure uh, very clearly. And, you know, think of all the ESMA, categories and all these things. These are all related to volatility and diversification is important to them. But there's also another measure because there's many measures of risk, but there's another one I think is really important that doesn't get enough attention, which is the vertical risk. And I mean, vertical on a chart, right? So if you started on the left of the chart and invested in the equity market, your passage of time would have a volatility as your market goes across the page but then you land somewhere, let's say after five years. And if you keep doing that, if you repeated that exercise every day, you'd have this distribution and you'd have an average vol over time, but you'd also have a distribution of final outcome over five years on your vertical axis. And that's something that is completely different. And uh, I, I, I think for the, for the real money private individual, the private individual investor who is not constrained by volatility personally outside of the regulatory requirement to look at it, you know, as a manager, I I think this, this final outcome distribution is really, really important and does not get enough attention. And so when we start thinking about diversification, I definitely feel that there is probably too much emphasis on diversification with the aim of suppressing volatility And probably not enough on how is that affecting your distribution of final outcome, your probability of success uh, over over five years. And and don't get me wrong, it's really important to look at vol, of course. It's very important to look at drawdown, which is something we would spend a lot of time looking at in any strategy. And we're very, very uh, interested in strategies that can help limit drawdown. And that's where that vol diversification thing fits in. The problem is, though, the statistical measure of all doesn't capture those moments where everything goes wrong and all correlations go to one. It's all very time varying. So so to get to the point and to your question, certainly um, private equity, just partly because of the way private equity is, is priced, and that's not just because it's illiquid and quarterly, but the way carry is added in and taken out over time. You know, there is a bit of a vol-suppressing element of that, which you can take a view on, whether that's desirable or whether it's just nonsense. Um, but it's certainly something that we think, uh, particularly if you look at co-investment type strategies, which we focus on, uh, very diversified as well, less concentrated, and really importantly, focusing on Europe or Asia rather than the US. And And the big reason for that is if you look at the private equity risk premium, In the U.S., there is a private equity risk premium, but it's been shrinking. And the S&P 500 is is such a great index in terms of delivering returns historically, it's really quite difficult for the typical private equity fund to outperform by enough to justify what is often, you know, pretty hefty multi-layers of fees. And uh, so that's something that we think is really interesting, the regional bias for private equity. Uh, If you say... You know, according to data we've looked at, at least um, the private equity risk premium in the U.S. maybe is generously two three percent over time in Europe versus the public indices. Uh, partly because the public indices are are not great and don't have a lot of you know mid cap and smaller cap uh, uh, stuff in it, uh, the private equity risk premium is is in high single digits uh, according to to the data we observe. So that's something that we think is really interesting, sort of replacing some public equity in Europe with with private equity. So that's something uh we really feel um is 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 appealing. And with direct PE, I think you really need an edge, you know, and uh I think uh Goodbody um you know now has a Goodbody uh Capital Partners which is a a business focusing on private equity particularly in Ireland but also um looking at VC and funds and things and you know with with the idea being that there is a, a particular edge there regionally and something definitely to look at for the future. But there's also other things, and again, they don't have to be as exciting as private equity or exciting in theory. Things like ABS, we think is very interesting in terms of jet ge- generating yield premia over you know standard more standard uh, short duration fixed income assets. We've used catastrophe bonds, which obviously are highly diversifying uh, almost all the time. Uh, and typically non-correlated with pretty much everything. Um, and traditionally we've always used property assets uh, illiquid semi-liquid property assets both global and and Ireland uh, for that as well and it's really worth obviously uh, and I know we may come on to this but there's obviously um, a, a big focus these days on sustainability and ESG and and we can definitely talk about how how that is integrated but we tend to do that in a slightly different way. And uh, we try and make sure that the asset allocation, whether a client has a preference or not, uh, from a sustainability point of view, that we are clearly taking uh, big account of those risks in the allocations that we make. So some of the PE, for example, uh, one of the funds we did this year uh, has some very particular focus on some of the UN SDGs, for example. Uh, and we, we do think there's, a, there's definitely an alpha potential uh, by just biasing exposures in that direction, uh, still to come, we don't believe that that is a is a story of the past. It's very much a story of the future.
3: Okay, and obviously, I take what you're saying in relation to volatility management and this focus on the kind of the five year outcomes. I guess in defence of maybe volatility and, and drawdown. Obviously, drawdown tends to be linked to, to to volatility. Obviously, depending on the asset class and and, and how you measure it, but I suppose what I'm getting to is that five year outcomes are great, but what about when you're two year into that five year period and the S and P is down forty percent, and some commentator on a podcast is saying that there's another forty fifty percent to go? I mean, that's the whole point about having the the, the less volatile path. Um, is that, that that obviously that's a challenging bit with, with clients that they're but, but by managing the vol, you you, you the less Likely to be to do something stupid at, at that point. 100%. In time. Hundred percent. Look, uh, but w- would you concur uh, yeah. with that perspective, or, or do you think you can manage the clients if you hit a, a big bump within the five-year period? Yeah, and and look, uh, I think it's really important to to make this distinction again
0: between the institutional and the individual. For the institutional investor, I do think there's a, a very very strong, I would say, even requirement for diversifiers, even pure diversifiers uh i'm always interested in how can we do things as efficiently as possible for the client and for example one way to suppress vol and drawdown in the first couple of years is phase into the market you know go in four steps three steps and we kind of look at that from an optimal point of view we will say well you know what's the risk profile uh what's the um uh, time horizon, and, and so on and so forth. And we will come up with a kind of plan in terms of, and also the scale is very important. Um, uh, and then we, we will almost certainly phase in over time. And the beauty of that is it's like a minimum regret strategy because if you, you you know present cash to be invested today and we invest a quarter of it and the market goes up, that's great. You have a quarter invested and you're in if the market goes down, you have more to invest. And you're you're kind of trying to find this cusp point where the investor is not really sure if they want the market to go up or down, which is exactly psychologically what you want. You don't want to create um, stress. And particularly in the first year or two, where returns, particularly equity returns, are relatively speaking, almost all vol, right? As, as in, you know, if I say to you, I think the equity market's going to deliver seven and a half percent per year for the next five years, you look at the scale of equity vol and what that translates into in terms of a potential movement in one year, that seven and a half percent is is not so significant. Uh, over five years, because it's linear, it's really relevant. But the volatility being non-linear, you know, progressing with the square root of time. It becomes less significant. So, this phasing in is in, in a way from a retail, uh, not a retail, but from a wealth oriented investor as opposed to an institutional investor. It, it can achieve something similar. Now, now, don't get me wrong, there's 100% a role for uh, pure diversifiers. And if we had a, uh, an investor who wanted to be invested straight away from the beginning, we would have to find other ways. Um, to do that, and, and using pure diversifiers is certainly one way to do that. So this isn't a this isn't a, a stance against diversifiers. It's just literally asking the question: What's the expected return, and what's the value of that relative to the volatility suppressing action over the life of the investment? And it's just a trade off. And this goes back also to the cash rate question. If cash rates were negative, diversifiers would be much more attractive. And if they're non-negative, they become, to me at least, that little bit less
3: attractive. So it's, it's based in that sort of logic, then, I would say. Yeah. Maybe that's it. Maybe, uh, it could take way into maybe talking a little bit about hedge funds. It's the one you haven't mentioned, and, and I'm curious, um, I know you started off, uh, it, it, well, in, at least in the early part of your career, a lot of it was focused on global markets and FX analysis and, and obviously FX trading and exploiting macro uh, trends is, is, is a source of return for many kind of macro-oriented uh, funds and trend followers and quant strategies. Has that experience made you less likely to invest in, in, in those types of strategies or more? Well,
0: you know, when, when I... Um was involved with hedge funds uh, many moons ago, they were a very different beast to what they are now. And the risk appetite of a typical, you know, larger scale hedge fund was, was, I would say, multiples of what it is today. Now, there's exceptions. But uh, the hedge fund industry um, certainly went through a long phase of evolving into more of a diversifier industry, uh, almost, I would say, than uh, a pure alpha, you know, driven, you know, full-on, uh, you know, massive VAR-taking institution. Um, so uh, we, we use very few, if any, hedge funds at the moment. We have done in the past. Uh, and again, this just comes down to thinking about how well can we define the expected return? And again, comparing that to all the other alternatives. And you could pick a manager for sure. Uh, you could definitely pick a m- manager and say, I believe in this manager; they can deliver for me over time. And if you if you have access, um, you could definitely go that way. And we would I, I mentioned the core satellite approach, for example, where particularly with a very large client, you have a core portfolio. You might have satellites of private equity and some interesting, you know, slightly riskier fixed income elements. Maybe some semi liquid property. You could also have a hedge fund or hedge funds. You certainly could. Uh, it's not typically something we we do in the core model that we build uh, for the reason that, again, it just comes down to how precisely do we think, or not precisely because that's a nonsense to say anything we do is precise, uh, but but how confident are we that the expected return we're perceiving will be delivered? And that's that's the approach I would say that we take. So today, particularly with cash rates where they are, we end up with with quite little uh, hedge fund exposure. That that may change in the future.
3: Yeah. And 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 more generally than on the FX question, obviously being a euro-based investor, and a lot of conversations tend to be kind of dollar-based in the first instance. But but as a euro-based investor, token declines, one, what's the philosophy on kind of global exposure versus euro denominated? And then secondly. Do you just accept the currency risk or do you try and manage it? Or how do you think about that? Yeah, so, and you're absolutely right.
0: I spent a huge amount of my career looking almost exclusively at FX. Certainly my first uh, 10 or more years, I, I was almost 100% an FX analyst. And I I made many discoveries at that time. This is certainly well, the one thing FX taught me is never believe anybody. Anything anybody says to you about financial markets because, uh, you you know, especially when I was doing it in the beginning, people would say things like, oh, well, the Fed's going to tighten. I remember back in 1994 when the Fed was going to tighten and it was kind of, you know, kind of consensus view. They ended up tightening a lot more than was expected. But, you know, there was this big view that the dollar would go up. And I'm not sure why. Maybe it was just my own ignorance or something. But I just looked back at all the past Fed tightenings to try and figure out what had happened. And I just made this discovery that the dollar 100% always went down. When the Fed tightened for the first time in a cycle, uh, so like you know, th- but it has to be really the first one in the whole cycle, and it went down really quite a lot, and, and that was repeated in 1994, and so I, I learned a huge amount about empirical work and and not believing anything people say because a lot of the time it's just supposition. It's what I used to call the missing paragraph. You know, you'd hear somebody say something like. UK. retail sales were very strong, therefore, I like the pound. I used to think, well, why do you like the pound? You know like can you link the, those things together for me? And there might be, of course, an interest rate related thing, but then how we looked at, at the so I, I really became very empirically focused um, and, and it's the same actually um, with the approach to FX in the portfolios. So when you look at the the value of global exposure, um, and we are very willing. We 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 hedge everything in fixed income, but we we take almost no well, not almost no very low amounts of non Euro fixed income risk. We just don't see the the need to do that. Um, uh, certainly not at the moment. Uh, we have done it in the past, but if you look at the equity side, we don't hedge anything on the equity side. And most of that, obviously, in line with benchmarks and everything else, uh, most of that is U.S. dollar exposure. And typically, and again, it varies over time because, you know, cost of carry will have an influence and valuations might have an influence. But typically, if the dollar is in the middle of ranges and interest rate differentials are are at, at least creating some cost of carry to hedge, it just has not been worth doing. And the equity return... Uh, and, and we we would still be very U.S. Uh, biased in our equity allocation. You know, we really believe, particularly with a lot of the major trends and structural things that are going on at the moment, the U.S. is still very well positioned from a corporate point of view. You can argue other, otherwise from uh, other perspectives, but from a corporate point of view, you know, the U.S. is almost certainly still going to be the highest productivity, most profitable Uh, It's going to be the center of earnings growth over time, still for quite some time. And so, you know, as long as we believe that, and then the currency volatility is relatively less, um, you know, than the equity return uh, over time, and there's a cost of carry, you know, to us, it just doesn't make sense to consider hedging under most circumstances. There are circumstances, and, and my approach was always just to have a very basic sense of valuation, look at a non-linear kind of model of that valuation to see what's the probability of a major snapback in valuation, which today would be pretty low because you're not that far from what we would consider reasonable valuations, and then look at the interest rate differential. And if the interest rate differential is in any way uh, you know, significant in the dollar's favor, actually, um, you know, you're strongly advised not to hedge. And that's the position that we would hold uh, at the moment.
3: Maybe just to pick up, you mentioned um, kind of the structural trends there and maybe the attractiveness of the U.S. And a couple of questions there. I mean, one, yes, you're right. Obviously, the U.S. has been better at generating earnings. It has had stronger earnings growth in the last 10 years. But obviously, now that's reflected in valuation. So a lot of people point to You've got frothier valuations in the U.S. and the opportunity is overseas. So how do you balance those two factors? One, a seemingly more attractive earnings generating capability versus a higher starting point in, uh, from a valuation perspective. Yeah, it, and, and it, it is definitely
0: a limitation. I don't think it's particular only to the U.S. Uh, now at the moment. And I do think, obviously, a lot of the answer to that question is going to depend on what you're plugging in for earnings growth long term and where you think things are going i I would say two things before talking about the regions if you if you actually consider the sectors it's very interesting there are certain sectors where and this is uh, not new to anybody i'm sure but uh certain sectors where earnings visibility is very high you know the stable uh, and it it ends up kind of that stocks in these sectors tend to be more the compounders more the reliable you can look at healthcare, for example, where you have very, very, very stable uh, earnings growth over time, the odd shock, of course, but something, you know, you would say is reasonably um, predictable. And then you have energy, for example, where, you know, the long-term trend is uh, pretty much zero, you know, there's, it's not going anywhere, but it's massively volatile. And so there's creation of opportunity from time to time in something like energy, but uh, energy kind of is just a very, very high volatility, high yielding asset, which if, you know, we don't have to hold equity if we want to have one of those, you know, we can we can do that elsewhere. So I would say um, uh, to me, um, the regions have not been entirely dissimilar. Uh, European equities, of course, uh, while they're doing very well of late, um, you know, from a trend point of view and an earnings growth long-term point of view, you would have somewhat lower confidence that looking 5, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, that Europe would be able to deliver the same degree of earnings growth as the US. Now, absolutely, in the next one, two, three years, there's a lot priced in. But then again, it's not to say that uh, there's too much priced in, uh, because we have some big structural themes. We're going to have some really significant rebounds, I would say, in earnings growth sectorally in the U.S next year, uh, things that didn't do so well this year that will be rebounding. And earnings growth, it looks optimistic, uh, you know, I think it's double digit expectations for earnings growth next year, but it, but it's, it's not unrealistic, given what is uh, happening among the sectors. But uh, I would go back, Alan, to what I mentioned earlier about um, if you if you just look at where trend earnings are, There's no doubt that equities are less attractive than they were. We are relatively high in earnings versus trend, and there is a gravitational pull. Now, there might be a lot of forces that push against that Uh, monetary policy. If it starts to ease now, as this pivot suggests, that's going to push against that. And maybe you you even see a longer period of equity overshoot. Uh, The fiscal side, it's still very unclear. Uh, if we're going to go into any kind of fiscal reversal, we we could, depending politically, what happens in the U.S., you could even go the opposite direction, which will cause longer-term problems. But it's not to say that there isn't the potential for surprises, and and I would say those surprises are probably more biased to come from the U.S. than elsewhere uh, at this point in time.
3: You touched on uh, sustainability and, and incorporating ESG. So maybe just to, uh, I mean, touch on that briefly. I mean, obviously, curious to hear kind of investor um, kind of interest in that as a topic, and then secondly, how you're incorporating that as a as a metric or as an opportunity in your process. So, I mean, first of all, um, you
0: know, we're very focused on the whole theme of decarbonization, the whole theme of sustainability. Uh, we do think there's a, a, a major structural uh, trend unfolding and it, it's just, you know, it, it, to me it's just simply follow the money. It's, it's just a question of where is the spending going to be, particularly on the fiscal side. There are massive projects that need to be undertaken. You can think of things like grid infrastructure, for example, as a, a as a theme where you would be expecting, a very significant earnings growth related to some of the really big build-outs that are going to come uh, over the next decade or so. Now, some of that's priced in, of course, already, but you know, those themes, I think, are uh, going to remain uh, really very, very strong. Where we struggle a little bit, I suppose, is dealing with the regulation side of things um, and uh, the regulations... Um, uh, that have been introduced over the last year or so, in terms of having to uh, survey client preferences and interpret—sorry, and interpret interpret those preferences um, in portfolio terms. That's definitely been challenging due to some lack of definitions and and maybe you know we need to be more precise in terms of what the regu- regulation is actually specifying. And I think more work is is being done on that. But we've certainly tried to approach it in in three ways. One one is to you know, of course, have the ESG integration. So, you know, I mentioned grid infrastructure, for example, Uh, almost every model uh, we run would have some exposure to grid infrastructure because it's not just a sustainability-related theme. It's something we want to own for the reasons that I mentioned. The second thing is to have what we call a sustainability-enhanced portfolio. And this is just literally... Uh, identifying a relatively straightforward uh, all-collective portfolio structure uh, for the client who says, or the investor who says, I want my portfolio to reflect sustainability as much as is reasonable without affecting my expected returns. That's obviously very difficult to be precise about, but ex ante, you would not have any different expected return for that portfolio uh, compared to um, any other one at this point in time at least and so that's something that we've spent a lot of time on but we are definitely not selecting what we would call sustainable investments you know when you think about what is required in selecting a truly sustainable investment in the way that an you know an article 9 reporting fund would do uh, we're definitely wary uh, of going too far down that road uh, too too quickly Our our approach is to say, look, there is a core sustainability-enhanced portfolio, and then if you, as an investor, you have a more granular uh, sustainability preference or an ESG preference, or uh, you you know, you you might have a particular interest in biodiversity or whatever it is, and that's come out in your really granular expression of your preferences. We can approach that from a core satellite uh, perspective. So you have a very straightforward sustainability enhanced portfolio that then you could select a small number of buy and hold investments around the side including even impact investments uh you could do that uh you know to address those preferences more directly that's all still in its infancy in practice uh and of course clients are expressing preferences they're being surveyed and this has been underway for some time and as those preferences come in you know you realize just how many different variants there are, and and that's why I think a core satellite approach does make does make sense. Uh, but whether we can address all preferences, we we just have to wait and see. I think.
3: Okay, good stuff. I'm conscious of time, and we're running up towards the hour, so we we normally wrap up by asking our guests just to maybe reflect on their careers and. Think about, I mean, any advice that they might have for people, not so much investment advice, although it can be investment advice, but as much career advice about, I mean, you mentioned uh, reading uh, Galbraith and Kindleberger uh, at the outset. Uh, Anything else that you've read that you would highlight or anything else you would say to people who are interested in wealth management, asset allocation and uh, investing to to do or or, or read? Um. Well, Kindleberger
0: and, and Galbraith, d- definitely. Just even for the entertainment value alone, uh, f- absolutely fantastic to read. The one book I would say, and I think it's a, I- I'm not sure what people's opinion of this book are really, but Thomas Piketty's Capital. Um, I just think that this book is, is incredibly important for anybody who is investing and expecting to make money, because this whole idea that the the uh, return on capital is greater than the rate of economic growth is, is kernel to what we're trying to do. You know, it, it's actually, it sort of tells you it's possible to do what you're trying to do. Um, there, there is a bit of an excess return out there. And if you apply capital to the market, you should be expecting, uh, to see, uh, some kind of decent return. Uh, I know that's not the, the point of the book, but it, it's, it's a really important, um, corollary and. And the other thing I like about that book is there's a lot of great stories about financial events and crises of the past, real detail uh, that is just a fascinating read. So that's one. I, it, it always looks a bit, uh, it looks big.
3: Daunting, it does, for but sure it, yeah. it, it's not as long
0: as it looks. <laughs> let's put it that way. And the other book, and I know everybody probably mentions this, but uh, years ago when I was a young lad uh, at Credit Suisse first Boston, I went to visit a hedge fund manager. You probably know Jim Leitner. Uh, in the US. And when I was leaving, uh, he went to his cupboard and he pulled out uh, a copy of Fooled by Randomness by Anik uh, Taleb, uh, the original book. And he had a whole load of them in there. I think he was giving them to everybody. And in financial markets, I think that's the best thing I, I ever read. I just think that's so great. And when you think about manager selection and all these things and just thinking, uh, about how to approach information in financial markets, how to approach track record, how to think about uh, decision-making, uh, that's the one I would definitely say is uh, you have to read either that or, of course, the Black Swan book. But I personally like the original Fooled by Randomness. And the only other piece of advice I have, just thinking back to my own starting point, you know, trying to keep things creative, and I I, I love to write and I've done all kinds of stupid things with writing. I, Alan, I I actually even uh, came up with a series once where I was interviewing currencies like they were people uh, to give them characters, <laughs> okay. you know, which, uh, you know, I'll leave someone else to say whether it was successful or, or not. But I do think, uh, or we we also used to write in a hundred characters a daily comment, not words, but a hundred characters. Like incredibly challenging, almost haiku style, but to have a beginning, a middle, and an end, I... I just think keeping creative and of course using data as much as you can embracing the contradictions you know keep it simple but but also think laterally and be creative you know learn to distinguish you know what's a fact and what speculation you know when, when when people are speaking i think that that's incredible there's a lot of lazy supposition out there and, and most importantly remember nobody knows anything for sure so so do be skeptical but again Don't let that stop you making decisions and having a strategy. And then once you have a strategy, which is totally different from a trade, you know, sticking to the plan. That's always my line. Uh, Stick to the plan.
3: Great stuff. Well, Joe, thanks very much. Uh, This has been a great conversation. So thanks so much for joining us today. So make sure to follow Joe's work because it's important in an uncertain and ever-changing financial landscape that you consider how to allocate capital well. Uh, So hopefully today's conversation has been beneficial and insightful. So from all of us here at Top Traders Unplugged, thanks for tuning in and we'll be back again soon with more content.
1: Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released.